Where is your faith? This is the question Jesus asked when his followers awakened him, fearful of perishing in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Where is your faith? His question is a good one, isn't it? Even groggy from napping on the lake, Jesus is the consummate teacher, posing a question that continues to prod and shape and instruct the church in every age. Each community of believers and each individual believer must wrestle with this question, much as the disciples wrestled with the sea as it threatened to upset their sail across the waters. The term for faith that Jesus uses in this passage is the Greek word pistis, which in classical Greek was used to mean confidence or belief. So where is your confidence, Jesus might be asking. But more specifically, in the Christian context of the New Testament, faith, or pistis, is accepting the person of Jesus, accepting his identity as the anointed of God, and accepting that his kingdom is the reality in which all things exist. When Jesus asks, where is your faith, he is not doubting that they have faith, nor is he implying that their faith should have been used to stop a storm. Instead, he seems to be asking them about the object of their faith and about the strength of faith that can overcome the fears that they are exhibiting. In whom is your faith? And how does your faith relationship strengthen you even when the world seems to be turning upside down? As I reflected on the chapters we studied this week, it is that question of faith that kept coming to mind and seemed to be almost directing the narrative as it continues to unfold. Just consider the story of the synagogue official whose only daughter died before Jesus could get to their home. Jesus said to her father Jairus, Do not be afraid, just have faith and she will be saved. Again, it's fear that seems to be the opponent of faith. Jesus invites a deeper relationship of trust from Jairus and his wife along with his inner circle. And in that trusting relationship, the young girl is raised to new life. And those already possessing faith witness a profound act from God, who is the giver of life. Surely, whatever fear had crept into them was being transformed as well. And so we can ask, where indeed is the faith of those who follow Jesus as he journeys from place to place in Israel? Where is the faith of those who hear his words and witness his deeds? Where is the faith of those who follow him in other lands and in other times? To answer those questions in the context of this lesson, we can begin by looking at the person of Jesus, the person whose relationship with believers is the foundation of that faith that Jesus speaks of. It is an outsider, a hostile outsider at that, who poses the next question for our consideration. Who then is this about whom I hear such things, asks Herod Antipas. With his capital in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, he has no doubt been hearing rumors about Jesus and without question knows that this Jesus is attracting crowds. At the very least, Herod, a political animal, would be naturally suspicious of anyone attracting such attention. Suspicious of anyone who might compete with him on any level. Suspicious of anyone who might popularize a message that is not the message of the ruler of Israel. Though Herod's question is no doubt filled with false motivations, it is the question that Luke wants his readers and listeners to ponder. Who is this man that is attracting such attention? I'd like to focus on how Luke seems to answer this question in chapters 8 and 9. In these chapters, I see that Jesus is shown to be an effective teacher whose teachings elicit a response from those around him. He is one who attends to human need and calls forth new understandings. And he is shown to be a suffering and rejected leader. So let's look together at each of these characteristics of Jesus. 
And the first one is Jesus is an effective teacher. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is depicted teaching in parables and in action. In classical Greek, the word parabole literally means that which is tossed aside, a definition that might make us think initially that parables are insignificant. In the life of Jesus and in his ministry, parables are anything but insignificant. They are used by Jesus to instruct, to challenge, encourage, and even accuse. Scholar C.H. Dodd defines the parable in this way, a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or from common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. It's a big definition, but really quite simple. It draws on natural things in the environment, but does so in a way that makes the listener kind of sit up and take notice, even makes the listener think differently. Perhaps a more succinct definition is offered by writer Megan McKenna, who says that a parable is the truth standing on its head for attention. Parables are a very flexible literary form. They can be quite simply stated or can be part of a larger narrative. They can be interpreted through the use of allegory, where each element is assigned a meaning, or can be seen through the lens of just one main message. Parables always hold a surprise for the listener, and they always involve the listener as an interpreter. Parables elicit a response, but it's not just an intellectual response. The response has to involve an openness to being changed in the hearing of a parable and in the search for its meaning. Chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel includes most notably the parables of the sower and of the lamp. Actually, even these names indicate some level of interpretation by the editors of our Bibles. The parable of the sower could as easily be called the parable of the seed or the parable of the soil. These titles might even change the way we read or hear the parable. The parable of the lamp could as easily be known as the parable of light. In both parables, Jesus' purpose is to reveal something about the kingdom of God and to invite his disciples into a deeper understanding of their role in that kingdom. The fact that the disciples of Jesus asked the meaning of the parable of the sower shows that they are engaged in the story, pondering its meaning, willing to listen further for understanding. They are to be sowers, regardless of the effectiveness of everything they do. At the end of the lamp parable, Jesus says, To anyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he seems to have will be taken away. The disciples are to share the light they've been given rather than guard it in secret. Again, we're being told that there must be a willingness to invest oneself personally in order for the meaning to be revealed and to impact the listener's life. The hemorrhaging woman who reached out and touched Jesus demonstrates this kind of investment. She was willing to risk further alienation, willing to touch Jesus because she believed in his power, even though she herself was an untouchable because of her physical condition. Likewise, Jairus, a synagogue official, made an investment. He sought Jesus out when his daughter was dying, even fell at his feet in a public act that was both pitiful and hopeful. Jesus acted to raise Jairus' daughter even when she had died by the time of his arrival. He touched a dead person, a violation of the law, teaching those who witnessed the event that God's mercy knows no barriers. Another teaching action of Jesus involves the calming of the storm at sea. This is not a simple demonstration of his power over creation. 
In ancient times, bodies of water were often understood as the location of evil spirits or chaos. So in calming the sea, Jesus uses the language of exorcism, rebuking the wind and the waves. He's not taming the seas as a demonstration of his power, but is once again, as God has done in Genesis, ordering creation and defeating the chaos that wishes to get in the way of their crossing to the other side, the side of the sea where Gentiles resided. Jesus is teaching even in the midst of a storm and is inviting his followers into a new level of relationship with him as master of the cosmos. The second lesson we learn about the identity of Jesus this week is that he attends to human need. That means he both notices it and addresses it, even when that need presents itself outside of the planned schedule for the day. Consider the healing of the woman with a hemorrhage. She seemed to interrupt the request by Jairus to come heal his daughter, and yet Jesus did not let her touch go unnoticed. An outcast within her own Jewish tradition because of her illness, the woman demonstrates a confidence and faith that seems to have been missing even among Jesus' closest followers. Or think about the way that Luke tells the story of Jesus feeding the multitude. He and his apostles had withdrawn, supposedly to spend time together, but it says that the crowds learned of this and followed him. Jesus didn't send them away, nor did he stop his ministry because the time came for a meal. When the twelve urged Jesus to send the crowd away, they were acknowledging the very real need for food and the very real circumstance of not having enough. But Jesus invites them to share in his ministry, to satisfy the basic needs of those who are gathered there. His attention to human need is not just physical either. By restoring the woman to health, he restores her to life in community. When Jesus feeds the large crowd with two fish and five loaves, he does it in a way that prefigures the gift of the Lord's Supper. He didn't simply distribute the food in the hope that it would stretch. He engaged in a liturgical action, blessing the bread, breaking it, and giving it to the crowd, illustrating that ministry and liturgy go hand in hand. We cannot separate the physical from the spiritual when addressing the needs of others, nor would such a separation truly satisfy those who are in need. Jesus addressed the whole person. Finally, Jesus is shown to be a suffering and rejected leader. We get hints of this when the population of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave after healing the man possessed with demons. The text says that they were seized with great fear. In his commentary, Fred Craddock reminds us that prior to the healing, the people knew where to locate evil in their midst. They associated it with the man who lived among the tombs. Well, the healing of that man forced them to give up their meager control of the situation, to admit that they did not have power over evil, something that could have been very frightening or even threatening to them. Where we might expect to find joy and awe, we are given a glimpse of fear and misunderstanding. Do you recall that we earlier commented on Herod? He wondered about the identity of this man who was in his region attracting a following. Now it's Jesus' turn to wonder whether his disciples have grasped his identity. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, we read, Once, when Jesus was praying in solitude and the disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets, has arisen. Now, any of these responses would have raised eyebrows. John the Baptist had a large following himself, and his death was disturbing enough to cause much talk and even some expectation of a return among those who knew him. 
it would have been quite a proclamation of faith for Jesus even to be associated with the ancient prophets. But Jesus doesn't want to know about rumors and gossip as much as he wants to know the hearts and minds of his own followers. He continues in verse 20, But who do you say that I am? Peter said in reply, The Messiah of God. Who is this Messiah? He's not to be a celebrity, even if some might have hope for such a figure. Jesus uses this confession of faith to force them to dig more deeply into his identity and then immediately offers this consequence of his ministry when he says that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And a little later, he gives another prediction. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men. Proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, has to be understood in a broader context that does not include just glory, but must include the redemptive suffering that leads to glory. Even the account of the transfiguration is tinged by the reality of suffering and death. Jesus is transformed, and Peter, James, and John see his glory. He is surrounded by those who symbolize the law and the prophets, since the start of the gospel, Luke has been stressing the many ways that Jesus fulfills all that has happened in Israel's history. So it's an awesome scene of victory and glory, and the three followers of Jesus are wrapped up in the excitement of Revelation. But what is it that Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about? The text says they talked about his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is a clear reference to an ultimate exodus where Jesus will walk the way of the cross, freeing not only himself, but in the process freeing all of creation from the power of evil and chaos. This Jesus, who will know suffering as well as glory, who has been teaching effectively in word and deed, and who has been attentive to human need when and where it is found, this Jesus is the one in whom we have confidence and in whom we place our trust. If Jesus had asked, where is your faith after his passion, death, and resurrection, perhaps his earliest followers could have responded by looking at him and saying, our faith is in you. By then, they would have known more about who Jesus was and who they were called to be. But this time of formation was essential. Even their being sent out to exercise demons, to heal, and to preach the reign of God was itself part of their formation. If they were rejected, they could begin to know what it was to take up their own cross and follow after Jesus. If they were ineffective in casting out demons, as was the case with the young boy of chapter 9, verse 37, they could again watch Jesus and learn from him. If they were caught up in aspirations for greatness in the kingdom of God, they could watch Jesus draw a child to himself and instruct them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is the least among all of you is the one who is greatest. Jesus made himself the least among all others through acts of service, by associating with sinners and outcasts, in touching and healing those who were considered unclean, in repeating the same lessons over and over for those who wanted to follow and to learn from him. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is depicted as a man shaped by his religious tradition and yet not a slave to anything that would prevent him from acting on his Father's behalf in the world. He was thoroughly shaped by the God who created and sustains the world, and he wanted the same for those who followed him. Luke uses a Markan story about Jesus and his family to illustrate the priorities of those who follow Jesus. 
In Mark's gospel, this story appears in an atmosphere of controversy, but Luke uses the story more as an illustration of what it means to receive the seed that is sown. I think it's a good story on which to end our reflections this week. And this is how it goes. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but were unable to join him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they wish to see you. He said to them in reply, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and act on it. Now, far from rejecting his family, Jesus appears to be using them to illustrate that while blood may be thicker than water, obedience to the word of God is the ultimate test of discipleship. His own mother is among the first in the gospel to say yes to the word of God, to the point of bringing that word to life in the world. She heard God's invitation and she responded, yes. We are invited to do the same thing, to consider how God is inviting us to bear Christ, the word made flesh in our world. Where is our faith? Our faith is in the one whose very life is a living parable. When we invest our very selves in following Christ, we too can become living parables of faith. Our faith is in the one who speaks the word with his voice and with his actions and invites us to do the same. Our faith is in the man who is willing to suffer the consequences of preaching the kingdom of God. Who is this who commands even the winds and the sea and they obey him? This man is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of God. <laughs>